And that year I went and ran a 200 mile race, which in and of itself isn't so bad, but I hurt my ankle pretty badly. And for the last 25 miles, I could barely walk. And as I made the last turn, this is four years ago, I just started crying. I didn't expect this at all. It was just like this Mm. emotional outburst. What I realized after pushing myself through all of this was that I was just so much trying to prove to myself that when I was a kid or throughout life and anyone doubted me or challenged what I was worth or anything, I had spent the rest of my life trying to show myself they were wrong. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. It's your girl, Jane Z. The year I was in grade six was pretty rough. I was bullied and pretty much didn't have any real friends that whole year. My best friend got pulled into the popular kids group and I kind of tagged along, but I knew that they didn't want me there. I didn't have anyone else to turn to, so I ended up writing in my diary almost every day that year. Thankfully, the following year, I got put in a better class and made new friends and bounced back. But man, kids that age can be mean, and I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. If today I were to come across one of those girls that bullied me, I think I'd be okay. Because I've worked on myself over the years, and I'm pretty happy with the person I turned out to be. I bring up this story because I think most of us go through some kind of traumatic experience as a kid, whether it was bullying or being lonely or some form of abuse. And that stuff sticks with us. And we spent so much of our adult lives just trying to reverse that damage and prove to the world and to ourselves that we're worth it. That's been an underlying theme of the story of today's guest, Joe Gagnon. Joe grew up in the Bronx in the 60s and 70s, and physically he was a pretty small kid throughout all of elementary and high school, so he got picked on a lot especially when he worked his first job at McDonald's and the other kids would call him Minnie Mouse because he had such a high-pitched, squeaky voice. I mean, today we call that bullying. Back in the day, he described it as, you know, you just felt uncomfortable and you keep your head down and just keep going. But that same person who was bullied all through his childhood ended up doing some really extraordinary things in his career and also as an athlete while helping raise a family. Joe started his career in consulting, and in his 30s, he became one of the youngest partners at Ernst & Young. He got to travel a lot internationally, and from that job, he went on to lead a number of tech companies as CEO and COO. And he's also founded his own company. At one point in his life, Joe was working around the clock and really only focused on work and family. There's a story he tells about being at a work event where they decide to do an arm wrestling tournament and he loses an arm wrestling match to a colleague who wasn't fit at all. And that really shook him. That was his wake up call to get in shape. So he started working out. He really only started running in his 40s. Now Joe's completed dozens of marathons and ultra marathons and even Ironman triathlons. His flagship adventure was running six marathons in six days across six continents, which I know sounds insane. And we will cover that whole journey in this episode. So in his journey of self-development, Joe came up with this framework around life, learning, and fitness, which he's actually written into a book called Living the High Performance Life, An Ordinary Joe's Guide to the Extraordinary. And today, we get to tease out some of Joe's practices. One piece of advice he gives that really resonated with me was this. Honor your commitments to yourself. Be careful what you commit to, but once you do it, you have no excuse but to show up. Once you let yourself down, then things start to spiral and you make excuses and blame other people. No, just commit and show up. Easier said than done, of course, but Joe, in all his years of living, is, you know, now living proof that if you just commit to your goals, now realistic ones, you can do some pretty darned incredible things. 
So with that, we'll get started with today's show in a moment. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to hit that follow button on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening for conversations like this every Tuesday. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. If you're on Instagram, you can message me at Inside Out with Jane, or you can email me at hello at insideoutwithjane.com. All right, on to the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hi, Jane. How are you today? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you? Did you go for a run today? I did. 10 miles this morning. Actually, I was listening to the podcast. Easy breezy 10 miles. Yeah. It was actually pretty good because I was listening to a guy who had just broken a record in a race called the Vol State. And uh, his story was just so good that this made me like not even notice I was going. Nice. Is that what you usually do is listen to podcasts while you run? I'd say about 50% of the time a podcast, 50% of the time try to listen to nothing. When I was doing Ironman racing, at the time you weren't allowed to run or do anything with music. So you better get used to just doing it on your own. And then there's a bit of that meditative state that you can get into when you're out running without any interruption. And and the longer the race, the more you got to get used to sort of that zombie state that you got to get into. So (laughs) zombie state. Love it. Have they changed the rules with Iron Man? So now you can bring music. I think that it's really hard to manage because people will put these small earphones in their heads. So yeah, they let more happen than they used to. But I don't think I would use it anyway, not in a race like that. I would just go for it. Have you always been fit and athletic since you were a kid? And what was Joe like when he was young? I was helping my parents clean out their house some number of years ago. And I found my report card from like second or third grade. And on it, it said, Joe likes to get in front of the class and talk to everyone. I was like shocked. (laughs) I was like, really? I wanted to do that because I don't have that as sort of a recollection of myself. I was like the smallest kid in school and through high school. I was more frustrated and disappointed by sort of the way the world worked at the time, which was you needed to play on the football team or be blonde and six foot two and 190 pounds, none of which I was. And we were pretty regular family, more family focused than anything, lower to middle income, lived part of my time in the Bronx and nothing too fancy. So my parents were not athletic and I learned how to do stuff as a kid, but we played softball in the street or street hockey or that kind of stuff. I think I ran for like a month in high school and then quit (laughs) because... It was scary to go into the locker room. Oh, Not bet. a good thing back then. We we call these things now bullying and all of that, but back then you never thought about it. You just felt uncomfortable. And I worked at McDonald's. <laughs> right. as, I, as you know, I wrote about this in my book. I was made fun of working there because my voice was really squeaky. And so you sort of just kept your head low and just stayed out of the way most of the time. So yeah, pretty ordinary start, I guess. Nowadays, we have names for those experiences and the conversation around mental health has really exploded, especially over the last year with COVID. But I think more and more young people are recognizing their own emotions and what they're going through, maybe to the extreme Mm. sometimes. Do you see that difference even with your daughters these days? Yeah, I think... We haven't got to the promised land yet, but we are improving. It's minimally, at least through awareness, not to harp on this gym thing, but people now know that it's not a really good idea to have a lot of high schoolers taking showers together when you're 15 years old. It's just really bad for people. There's nothing good that could come from that. So we're starting to be aware. I think the piece that I most like, though, is the understanding that diversity and inclusivity really matters. 
And while we're not executing perfectly, at least the next two generations, whether it's millennials or Gen Zs, are starting to say, hey, let's be who we are. And I think we're moving in the right direction. Long way to go. But I do feel like next generations have a much better sense. And I'm learning from them. What did your community look like growing up and then going into college? Where I went to high school was in the inner city of the Bronx, and it was rather integrated. But it was a Catholic high school, so somewhat of a pre-described kind of way of seeing the people there. In my regular life, my mother's first-generation Italian, so... We grew up as though we had just gotten off the boat ourselves, and it was we hung out with people like us, especially our cousins and family. When I got to college, it was different, which I really enjoyed. It opened up the aperture, people from around the country or from around the world, and I started getting really curious about what it would be like to get outside the U.S., meet people from, whether they're from Africa or Australia or something. It's like, wow, we had such a closed view of ourselves growing up. And I sort of didn't even want to be around people who were like me. I think I had a fill of that. And so there was Mm. this curiosity that started to be like, oh, wow, I wonder how they think. Or actually what I loved always asking was, what do you think about us? How does Mm. the world think about Americans? And it was fun to hear. What's your favorite answer to that question? Uh, Well, I think it's evolved based on who is the president sometimes. (laughs) But I do think that people believe in, with all my world travels, it's a land of opportunity. And so they were always like, was it, is it really like that there? Can you really just start a company, for example? So there's a lot of curiosity. So you've done a lot of traveling in, in your career, but what was your first international travel experience? Whew, that's a good question. I, I remember my first business trip, which was to Denver. And I went on a business trip with my boss on a Sunday and I got on the airplane. He was dressed in a suit and I wasn't. I had a blazer on. I'm like, are you supposed to wear a suit? (laughs) But but one of the best stories, I think this is just funny to tell. So we get out to Denver and he's like, hey, let's go ride out into the mountains. I had never been anywhere. And I said, oh, that'd be fun. So we rent a car and we start driving. And at the time he was smoking. And he kept smoking in the car and I thought I was going to die. And he was like 10 cigarettes into the trip. And I was like, <laughs> "Oh my God, Alan, do you think you could stop smoking for a little while? He got very mad, but we opened the window and he stopped. I thought that was like career limiting, but at least uh, it didn't end my career there. The first international trip I had was to London. And I ended up going to London probably like 65 times after that it became one of my favorite places to go. And at the time I just had this old, idea that what would it be like to go to a pub and have a beer? And it turned out to be exactly what I had hoped it would be like. (laughs) But it was easy to go there. It was when you started to go to countries that didn't speak English that you started to really get a mindset around. When you go to someone's house, you should always start off with respecting them and their culture and their way. And so I would always sort of try and be a half step back and not be such an American when you go out there and tell everyone why you're so much Mm -hmm. smarter than they are. It's if you're going to visit someone's home, if you're going to join a company, the first thing you should do is like, oh, would you like me to take my shoes off if I walk into your house? Like respect the traditions and the values of the people that you're going to visit. And then they tend to accept you more. Like sort of enjoy their culture. Tell me about it. Tell me about your food. Take me out. Introduce me to what you do. Everyone loves that, right? So that's Mm. part of what I enjoyed about the travel I've been to now 45 countries and flown over 4 million miles. And you find that if you go somewhere, you should start off by appreciating everything they have. In selling, it's the same thing. Start off by seeking to understand. If we were to fast forward and say, how did you do that six marathon, six continent challenge? I had friends Mm -hmm. around the world who were all dying to help me when I showed up in their country, got to the airport, picked me up and gave me some food and took care of me. But that doesn't happen if you haven't treated them well in your lifetime. And I think that sometimes we're a little bit insecure. So we bring our point of view. If we're more secure, we can accept someone else's point of view. And I think that that's really part of why we should leave our house is to go find out what it's like in other places. We already know what we're like. So I think it was a big lesson that I learned as I went along. The other one, just a small quick one, is if you're in another country and they're speaking English most of the day, 
and they have another native language, every once in a while, let them speak in their native language because after a while, it just gets tiring for them always mm. to speak that second language. I'm like, yeah, sure, don't worry. I'll just sit here and look at my email or something while you guys have a conversation. And I think they always appreciate that, right? Simple mm. things. I would love to dive into your six continents, <laughs> six marathons adventure. There's a couple steps yes. that uh, I want to take us through to lead us there. You mentioned the community piece of building up these relationships with people around the world. Were these all people that you met through your career or kind of through work mainly? Yeah, I think so. For the most part, the job put me in a place where I would go and need to be somewhere. So I think if I was to step back a little bit, one of the theses that I have about being successful in life is this idea of situational awareness, or like as General Petraeus once said, you can't commute to the war. Like I always had to go see something and be there to actually understand it. So when I did that, I would often engage very deeply with people to show me around. I spent a lot of time working in retail. I would go visit their stores. I would try and understand the customs and culture. You had to get to know the people personally. Like, okay, where do you go to eat? How do you live? What do you do? There's a book series called Culture Shock South Korea, Culture Shock Australia, whatever. And it sort of tells you about what is it really like to live there or to be part of that culture. And so having that level of sensitivity then endears you to the people because we're all the same, right? It just happened to grow up in a different place. And then what I always did was try to make them successful. Let me help you go close a deal in your local account. Let's go make a presentation to someone. Let's train some of your team. Let's hang out with them. And in so doing, it was no longer my trip. It was their trip. I went to India, I think maybe eight times. And I was always sort of exploring and would try to eat whatever they gave me as long as it seemed somewhat reasonable. But then they started helping me see the rest of their country. They would take me places you would never go if you were just sort of working or a tourist. Then you just sort of have this strong bond because you both know the people, their family. I spent more time for many years outside the U.S. than in the U.S. I actually enjoyed it better mm -hmm. sometimes too. It sounds like you might have accidentally landed on this job that took you to all these countries, or was it intentional? Mm, there's two parts to that answer. Number one, the first time that I ever really got to do anything of substance, like when I was at Ernst Young, when I was still a manager, and as a partner, I had a project, and it was actually in Rochester, New York, in the middle of the winter, working with Xerox. And he said, we need a staff person on this project who wants to go. And there were like eight of us in the room, and no one raised their hand. And I said, I'll go. And at that moment, what I realized was I was so much more in control over what was going to happen to me than I realized because everyone else was taking themselves out of the game. They overjudged the situation. They're like, oh, I don't want to go there in the winter. It's like that Mikey in the Life Serial. He'll try it. And so I would just go anywhere. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, he'll just go. And so you became a go-to person. So you just started to open up more opportunities than anyone else would get. So it's really easy, right, if you're going to mm -hmm. ask someone – like, I don't know if you want to go on a run this weekend, Jane, but if I asked you and I had a 50-50 chance of you saying yes, I might not even ask you, right? Mm. But if I knew I had a 100% right. chance, then for sure I'm going to call you. And so I think mm -hmm. in life, to put yourself in the opportunity spectrum, you have to say yes and not have all of these conditionals. Well, I'll go if, and maybe it'll fit. And what's the, the like, there's too much of that. And then, like, they're like, ah, I don't want to bother. But me, it was just like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Like, I never really cared. Because I was like, I could always make it great. Because isn't that up to me anyway? And so I would go places for long, long periods of time. I mean, nine months. I mean, I would come back on weekends and so on, but nine months, a year, two years. And of course, I had a family that supported that. But I, I would just go back to anyone listening. Put yourself in a position to say yes. And then when you get that opportunity, say yes. And then all of a sudden, your opportunities will grow exponentially without you even realizing it. Mm. All that made sense, assuming you were like in your 20s and didn't have all these responsibilities and family, but you were doing this also while married and had a family. Mm. How did you make that work? It's a great question. I think that if you're going to have any kind of relationship in life, you have to get some kind of agreement when you start as to what your expectations are. 
while it might not be perfect, you should say, okay, this is how it's going to be. And so it could be work, it could be marriage, it could be anything, just friendship. I think often our problem is we don't know what the expectations are, and then we imagine them in our head, and then we create an argument from that. So early on, what we decided was that I was going to go where the work was. And as it turns out, Anthea, after working for a couple of years with kids, decided to stay at home. And so this is the priority. And you weren't going to say no, because who knows what might happen from that. But it was very explicit. Okay, during the week, you're probably not going to be here. You'll be here on the weekends. At least give us a call every day, which I did every day for all the days that no matter where I was in the world, I would always call and say hello, remind them I was still thinking about them. One day when Snapchat started, I think it was 2013, I still was <laughs> like connecting. But they go back to this sort of like expectations and setting them clear. Now, if you can't get them clear, then you better really try to understand like, can we accommodate that missed expectation? I was pretty true to it. I took care of all the other goals we had financially. I was able to get a bunch of experiences. We created uh, independence and autonomy and a sense of belonging in the minds of the kids. And while there were days when Kimberly once, when she was four, said to me, you're no longer part of our family, mm. you knew that that was a four-year-old who just was four years old. Like, what would she know? Probably hungry yeah. or something. <laughs> so it didn't feel good hearing that. But I think that what I learned they learned through me and then we all became very similar and traveled around the world and explored and often we create problems that are ours and we hand them to someone else the simplest example would be if you have a boyfriend a girlfriend whatever it is or just a partner someone leaves the toothpaste top off and the other one doesn't like that and so then they yell at the person why don't you put the toothpaste top on and they're like i don't know I don't think about it. And the person's like, well, it matters to me. Then just do it yourself. Take care of it yourself. Don't force people to do what you do because they're not doing anything against you. It's just their way. And why is your way better? There's a lot to that. And we could unpack that one day, but that really helps. Mm, I think what you said there about setting expectations is so, so, so important, especially if you're going into kind of a long-term work commitment or any kind of long-term project. It's like you have to be aligned from the start. So you write in your book, you call yourself an ordinary Joe, your book, The High Performance Life, but you've done so many extraordinary things in your life. And one of them in your career is while you were at Ernst & Young, you were one of the youngest people to make partner only six years in. You get flown out to Italy, I think it mm -hmm. was, to speak in front of a bunch of employees. And you go on this rock climbing trip and you have this epiphany about success as you're rock climbing. Do you remember yeah. what you were thinking there? In all my travels around the world, I think the most extraordinary people don't think they're all that special. We sort of look at our own selves through the lens of who we are, not how everyone else looks at you. So making partner was a surprise because I thought that's what other people did, not me. But I realized was that it was all about those choices and about my performance. And that's what I was in control over. So I wasn't getting gifted anything. I just figured out what was it that would take to make partner. And I found out that that was meaning you have to go sell business. And so then I made a really purposeful move to mimic myself after the ones who were the best at that. And so I studied mm -hmm. them. I apprenticed under them. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's how they're successful. So now I can be. And then when the first time I was up, I didn't make it. And I got pretty annoyed, but I then worked double hard the next year to make it so obvious that no one could ever say no. So that was all about me taking control of that situation. What happened when I went to Italy was I now had this success, this anointed level of success that, you know, at the time being a partner was a big deal. I was making a lot of money. I had a really nice house and the country club and all that. And, and then I just felt like what happened on that rock climbing trip was I was just focused on not just this material wealth, but what it was like to get connected back to the earth. And there's something that rock climbing does that to you because there's this sense of fear and apprehension and excitement and all of that. And I realized that the material success I felt was satisfying everyone else who you were trying to impress which is, I think, unfortunately, what we do, even if we don't realize we're doing it. I thought, well, I don't know, if you're going to live another 50 years, for argument's sake, like, what else can you accomplish? I mean, if you already have that, then 
more of the same can't be that much more rewarding. And I realized then that I was going to have to sort of start on this journey of, of self-development and looking for purpose and fulfillment beyond just what was in the bank account or what someone else thought about. The trigger just happened to be in Italy because it was very exciting and at the same time, like lonely moment because I was by myself. Everyone spoke a different language than me. And I had this like, oh, wow, you got to figure it out for yourself, boy, because no one's going to help you. And so when I came back, I was like, okay, so now what do you do? How do you create a deeper life, a richer, more fuller life? And I realized that on reflection that it had turned into just work and family. And this Joe Gagnon didn't exist, really didn't. As a unique individual, like people at work might have thought of me, but me of myself, I didn't have that soul. And I was like, wow, I better mm -hmm. do something to develop that. Like if we went to Maslow and looked at his hierarchy of needs, you get the basic needs in the middle of your self-esteem and at the top of this self-actualization. Well, how do you get there? You get there when you finally believe in yourself so deeply that you don't need others to believe in you. And that's a really important journey to go on. Because once you do, then when you find that, then, wow, I think life just becomes even better. For you, was that when you started on your kind of fitness journey? And I love this story of the arm wrestling match oh, you had God. that really <laughs> set things into motion. I'm probably like some of the people who listen to your podcast at some level, we're sort of obsessive compulsives, right? That's what we are because whatever we do, we do a lot of it. So when I was really intense on working, I could work 80, 90, hundred hours a week and not think anything of it. What I was doing is working too, too much at the time. And we had an event that we put on and at the end of the event, everyone's having a beer or two and someone says, Oh, let's have an arm wrestling competition. I was sort of, this was before my fitness days. I sort of fancied myself being in shape. And so this guy, Gary Egan, who at the time was um, a really smart guy, but not athletic at all, he challenged me to arm wrestling. I was like, oh, I'm going to win this. And I lost. And I was oh, just like despondent. And so I actually tried twice. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't win the second time. And I left there and I said to myself, never, ever again, should you find yourself in that spot where you really have minimized your capability in a specific area. Like you have to be more multidimensional. It just can't be work and family. That's not enough. And so I said, okay, let's start a fitness regimen. I just ran a mile. Oh, that was hard. Try and lift some weights. That was hard. Start doing some push-ups. That was hard. Everything was hard. But back to that sort of obsessive compulsive kind of thing, I started writing it down in a spreadsheet to keep myself accountable. And now for the past 21 years, I've written it down what I've done every day for 21 years. If I was to say for anyone listening, there's a lot of really important dimensions of life. But one is the commitments you make to yourself you need to keep. And don't compromise on those commitments you make to yourself. So if you say you're going to go run a mile, there is no reason why you're not going to go run a mile. There's literally none. Zero. Like there's no negotiating. If I told Jane, I'm going to meet you to go get a coffee tomorrow. Well, then we're going to meet because I said that it's mm -hmm. no one for it. Like anything that you do of your free will, you have to deliver because the only person you let down is yourself. And then when you start letting yourself down, then it unravels and then you start making excuses and then you start blaming. And now mm -hmm. you're in a really, really bad place. Instead, be careful what you commit to. Because once you commit, then go do it. So that's why the spreadsheet, because I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to make a commitment in the beginning to work out two days a week, then three, then four, then five, then six, then seven. Over the past 15 years or 20 years, I've taken off five days. And those were sort of wow. a random thing because someone told me you should take off a day after the Ironman. I listened to them. <laughs> I mean, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but I don't do that anymore. I don't like that idea. It's like <laughs> no breaks, no, no rest. No, no, no. But you do need to give your body rest. Active recovery is good. So you can still be active. Go get on a spin bike and spin easy or do easier weights or jog instead of run hard. We do a lot of things every day. We eat, we sleep, we brush our teeth. There's no reason we can't exercise every day. Well, I've proven it over 20 years. I mean, just recently I finished a streak of running 540 days in a row. I ran 10 miles a day and did 100 wow. pull-ups and 100 push-ups. 
And I only stopped because I was doing another race that didn't allow me to continue that. But after 100 days, it was the body had adjusted to it. I, I swear to you, anyone on this call could do that. It's just a journey. Yeah. Do you want to go on that journey? You may not want to, but there isn't I can't. Because when I started, mm. I used to say, oh, that's not possible. Like, oh, I would never become a vegetarian. I would never stop drinking alcohol. I would never run a marathon. All these things that, you know, I run, I don't know, 35 marathons and 50 ultra marathons. Like, don't, don't do that to yourself. When you make mm -hmm. commitments, stick to it. It's your life. Be the steward of your life. Whatever it takes to keep yourself accountable to yourself, everyone will notice and opportunity will open up. I think when you just say, I ran 10 miles for the last 540 days straight, that sounds wild. And for someone who doesn't run regularly, that sounds like a lot, but it's incremental, mm -hmm. right? Like in your book, you have this great time accounting method you use called the 168 weeks. That... Yeah, 168 hours in a week. Um, I oh, think yeah, that, hours, yeah. Yeah, no, we've done this a lot in workshops. Like I'm going to give you a spreadsheet and give you the 24 hours a day and fill it out for the seven days of the week and then doing a, like a really good self-assessment. Are you happy with how you just spent your time? The only thing that we can trade on is time. That's all we have, we have time. There might be some resources inside our system, but time is the currency against which we apply our resources. So if that's your currency, if you have 168 hours, how would you like to use them? And then the outcomes are going to come from that. So not to be judgmental, if your decision is that you want to watch 30 hours of Netflix, then you'll be really good at Netflix. I don't know how that <laughs> translates into any other outcome. Maybe you could get on Jeopardy. I don't know. But if you were going to use that 30 hours some other way, how could you use it? Right? And that's, I think, what I started doing was I was realizing, okay, I had this thing in my head. All right, well, you can only work and take care of the family and sleep. Well, then maybe if I sleep a little less, I get an extra hour in the day. Maybe I sleep even a little less. I get two extra hours in the day. And that's what I started doing. And then I said, how do I want to use that time? And I said, oh, I'd like to exercise during that time. Then I became a writer. I'm like, okay, well, where are you going to fit that time in? And I realized that from 9 to 10 at night is usually a relatively unproductive time of the day. Unless you're working on a project, you're probably pretty much done with your work. Maybe already talked to whoever you might be talking to. And then so sort of like, oh, huh, what do I do now? And usually it's like a dead time. I, you might fill it with TV or some chores. But what if you wanted to write and write between 9 and 10 at night? In the beginning, it's hard. But over now, I've written a blog for 3,100 days in a row. I never was a writer before. That was an hour, just an hour of a day, seven hours in a week. Like, okay, that's a pretty good use of 168. Then you'd work out two hours a day. The one that I really had the most fun trying to get to is 1,000 hours of workout in a year. It's about three hours mm. a day for the whole year. Wow. I did that for three years, but boy, that was discipline. I promise you, you had to get up and do two hours in the morning. You had to do an hour at night. And then if you missed an hour or two, then you were going to make it up on the weekend. Uh, but, oh, boy, boy. but it drove my behavior because I was measuring the time. Now, some might say, well, you should just sit in the backyard and have a beer and relax. Amen. Like, I don't judge anyone for any of that. It's just connect what you do with the outcomes that you can create. That's what some ordinary kid went to school in the Bronx was able to go do more than ordinary activities and outcomes. Just don't make an excuse. Don't tell me I can't because because I, I don't buy it because I went through it. Right. That's the only reason. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't be a believer. Mm -hmm. It's like the Nike thing. Just do it. Yeah. Like to ask yourself the question, why not? Then maybe at least just try it. Like imagine if just for one week you got up at 5.30 every morning and thought of what you could do from 5.30 to 6.30. Like, what would change? Maybe you might like what you find. Yeah, I, I uh, usually hate early morning flights, but I scheduled a 6.30 one a couple weeks ago. And I was pleasantly surprised at how not tired I was at like 4 a.m. <laughs> I'm like not an early morning person usually, but... I wasn't either. Like, mm -hmm. I never liked the morning, but the Navy SEALs that were a heavy influence, I read about them over and over and over again. And that early morning time is your time. It is the time of day no one wants to talk to you. Almost nothing is going on. Let's forget the fact that maybe you're working internationally and there's that, forget that, in your local community. The earliest anyone's going to get up probably is 4.30. I mean, of course, you get up earlier, but let's go from 4.30 to 7 in the morning. That's like literally free time. You own it. 
no one mm. cares what you're doing then. <laughs> <laughs> but later in the day, it gets harder. There's more of a draw on your time. Like, hey, I'm going to work out at five o'clock at night or like, okay, I'm meeting or dinner or something. So I think it was one of the simplest but most profound secrets that I learned was like, shh, they're not awake. Go do what you want. <laughs> right. I feel like that's such a parent thing. It's like before the kids are up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, hours. probably when I was in my 20s, I wasn't doing that. How long did it take from day one of going on that first mile run to your first race, whether it was a marathon or, or triathlon? Well, I did a lot of short stuff. I started okay. running 5Ks and 10Ks. Mm, okay. And then I did like these biathlons, which is a run and a bike thing. And you could run three miles, bike 10 and run three. And I liked that. It was all probably within the context of an hour. And then I started cycling longer. I liked riding uphill. That was probably five years into my journey. I started finding cycling to be a lot of fun. Then I gave myself five years to go do an Ironman. I was like, all right, if you wow. give yourself five years, you should be able to learn how to swim 2.4 miles, ride your bike 112 and run a marathon. Most people think you got to give yourself a year or two. Most I'm like, ah, five years. Like what kind of excuse could you come up with? <laughs> so right. it took a while. So that was in 2009. I did my first Ironman. So it was nine years after I started the journey. And it was the first time I actually ever ran a marathon distance was in the Ironman. So 2009 till now, you know, I did six Ironman races and the 35 marathons and the 55 ultra marathons. That's all been in the past 10 or 11 years. So it keeps amping up because you start to build up both an endurance mindset and a body that can take the sort of the pounding. And I never really felt very good if I wasn't exercising. So I just like the feeling of satisfaction. I think it's another part of what's a failure of some of us is that we we're so anxious and impatient that we don't give ourselves enough time to develop into what we can become. As entrepreneurs, it's like success doesn't have to happen in a year. Like, what are we rushing towards? Like, let's just put a marker out there that we're all going to live 90 years. And like, give yourself some time. 10 years, it's fine. Because I don't know what you can do after that. And having patience allows your capability to develop much deeper than you would otherwise be able to develop. And you definitely need patience and persistence mm. to do races like that. Yes. I think this is a good time to talk about the mega adventure you carved out for yourself, the six marathons in six days on six continents. Walk us through how that idea came about and then how you planned it out, how you actually executed and what the journey was like. Yeah. When I was going through all of my sort of evolution or whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> development, I always had this idea that I should go climb Mount Everest. It was like the hardest, biggest thing one could ever do. Well, you got to take off like three months from work. And how am I going to do that? So I haven't gotten myself around the idea that I could take off three months from work yet. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> so I always had this idea that I needed to do some kind of big adventure. So I would read about people and so many of them took a lot of time. Like you could row across the Atlantic, you could run across the U.S., you could bike across the U.S., you could, and everything was 20 days, 30 days. And so I'm like, okay. So I kept the idea in my head to do something big. So I started writing my book and I realized that the way to end the book, if there was going to be some kind of exclamation point would be a big challenge. I had been reading about these people who had done seven marathons and seven continents in seven days. But what they did was they did it in a charter. And so they would start in Antarctica and they'd have a chartered plane and they would go from location to location. And they did it in their own way. It wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a lot less effort. You just paid your whatever $50,000 and you went. And mm. you wow. could only do seven continents if you start in Antarctica because you can't fly there commercially. I'm like, I know the people around the world. I know how to run marathons. I know how to fly. I mean, I'll be a passenger, of course. And like, what if I did six? I'm like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Six marathons, six continents, six days. And then I floated it by, by a bunch of people. And they're like, you're crazy. Like, why would, could you? You <laughs> yeah. shouldn't. And there's all this like, well, you could get hurt. Or what happens if it doesn't work? And I was like, all right, I'll go find out. And then I realized, okay, well, now you have to figure out the flights. It took me about six months. Not every day, but 
it didn't know where to start or where to end. Like there's no path. You had to map the route to a flight to the right country so you could get on a plane at the end of the day and go to a next country. And so, so I decided, okay, the first thing I would do is commit to starting in Australia. I had some really good friends there and they were like all committed to fitness and so they would support me. And through the time I realized, okay, I could go Sydney to Singapore then Singapore to Johannesburg, then Johannesburg to London, London to Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo to LA. So I figured that whole thing out. I bought coach seats in all of those flights. They were all going to be somewhere between 12 and 13 hours a day. And you'd have somewhere between, Oof. you know, 11 and 12 hours in the country. Everything had to work perfectly because if you missed your flight, it was over. Like it would be all over. Mm. So people say I'm too optimistic. I'm just, just knew it would work. I don't know. I guess Mercury <laughs> wasn't in retrograde then. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> I only found out about that afterwards. Uh, but so, so we had that all set. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to get people in each of these countries or my friends, and I'm going to make them captains. And they would pick me up at the airport. The only thing I want you to do is I want an egg sandwich. I'm vegetarian, but also I will eat eggs. And then a peanut butter sandwich for lunch. And then take me back to the airport and then give me something to drink. Wow. That's what I asked for. So I wrote out this long thing. No one paid attention to anything. They did whatever the heck they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> they showed up at the airport, picked me up. And as I got prepared, I always like to tell people this part of the story because it's important to me was I wrote myself a note and I said that the lows will be the highs that I was really going to find out like how hard could this be? How bad could you feel? How difficult would it be? But to fast forward to the end, I never found anything at that low. Like, yeah, I heard a little mm -hmm. bit running. I ran all the marathons sub four hours, so I was running. I wasn't just walking and jogging. But I think it was about the mindset going in that I was, like, desperately looking for something that would really be hard. And it's not easy, but it, there were funny moments. The What is it? Latam Air didn't want us to fly from London to Sao Paulo because they said, you're only staying in the country 12 hours and you should just go straight to L.A. So we spent two hours arguing with them about getting me on the flight and that kind of stuff happened. But otherwise, I had already flown so much. I've done so many overnight flights. I have run 35 or 40,000 miles by this time in my life. This was all familiar territory. So in some sense, I had trained forever to go do this. So it was a very likely and smart kind of challenge to take on. I enjoyed that part of it. The part though that became the mystery that I didn't know I was stepping into was how much everyone else enjoyed being part of it with me. Mm. So when I got to each country, in a sense, they sort of owned it and they took over and then I just ran. So whether it was getting me from the airport or it was taking care of me while it was going on. Or sometimes people would run with me. Like one time a guy rode a razor scooter with me because he wanted to be out there. And everyone sort of felt like they were part of something really special. In Johannesburg, there was a bunch of high schoolers who came out and ran with me because they had mm. never seen anything like this. And so I really enjoyed that mystery that was found, which was that there are people in the world who want to do things with you to experience it in their way, to feel the same that you might feel. I was very happy for that. I always say the world is full of really a lot of really good people. We sometimes just don't know that until we go out and find that. Wow. That's so, that's so cool. And of course, only you, Joe, would say this was, you didn't find any hardship in, <laughs> in a journey like this, but it's, it's true. I mean, it's like you had the unique training of not just the running, but also the flying and traveling for virtually your whole life that prepared you for this. How we set the context for our lives is a lot of how we're going to feel about it. Or did someone else set the context for you? Was it your mother or your father one day? Was it your friends? Was it people you don't even know who set some expectations for how you should feel about yourself rather than how we should feel about ourselves? And sometimes you have to almost willing to be completely alone on your own journey with the belief in who you are to find that path to this self-actualization. Because there's that point where you stop realizing what you're doing is for everyone else and you start doing sort of who you are and what you need to be. So one of the important parts about this, Jane, that I really think is this idea of becoming comfortable with who we are. And I think that happened as an entrepreneur. In the beginning, the first company I was CEO of, I 
after six board meetings, they asked the chairman how I'm doing, and he said better. And I was like, oh, like, <laughs> okay. So, like, in that one word, I had this, like, real big epiphany, which is, okay, you're not that good yet. This is your first time. Like, how good could you be first-time CEO? You can't be that good. You just can't. You don't know. You've never done it before. And then you go through life trying to prove to everyone else that all that you do matters because you're measuring yourself to their standard. Maybe you get to the point where you realize that you need to be who you are. I enjoyed being an entrepreneur. I still enjoy being an entrepreneur. It's hard. You have to be willing to suffer along with the, the challenge of what that means. You're the backstop and you're the energy force. Like I did a presentation once and just impromptu, I took a piece of paper and I crumbled it up and I threw it in the middle of the floor. And I said, see that piece of paper? Like imagine I'm the CEO of a startup. The only way that paper is moving is if I go pick it up. And it's the same thing if me and a startup. Like unless I go and sort of push it along, it ain't going anywhere because there's no natural energy in it. We accept that. We accept it not because we're trying to prove something to someone. Like, don't be a CEO because you think you're trying to impress someone. Like, that's not even a great job, really, at the end of the day. It's a job that has a lot of conflict and compromise in it. It can be very satisfying from what you're able to do and lead and develop, but that can't be the goal is to be crowned something because who cares? Really, at the end of the day, at my funeral, they're not going to say, oh, well, he was a CEO. Like, no. How did he treat people? What was he like? Mm -hmm. Was I inspired for some reason? Did they carry the burdens of life in a different way? Someone who I saw work through the struggle without handing me their burden. There's so much that we can take away from people who we respect and want to be around. And I think that that's what I've found along the way. And I did find my own version of self-actualization recently. And boy, there's a lot of peace that comes when you finally realize that the kids that I was trying to impress in high school don't even know where I live because mm. it wasn't comfortable then. And then the rest of your life, you're just trying to prove that they were wrong. But to whom? Mm. <laughs> Who are you trying to prove mm -hmm. it to? Yeah. What you just said around the reality of being a CEO versus the perception is, is so crucial. A lot of that behind the scenes struggle is what people don't see. What's shared is all the success, but there's infinitely more grind behind all of that. What were maybe some of the hardest days you remember as a leader of a company? Yeah, I think early stage companies have the whole finance overhang that you live with all the time. If you're sincere about the job, you feel responsible for the health and well-being of all the employees who work for you. I mean, I desperately love the customers, but they're fine. But the employees, their families depend on you. Everyone depends on you to do a good job. So if you're financing the company, no matter how you're financing that company, you know, every day I was worried about, okay, do we have enough money to make payroll? and making sure you're out there either raising money or saving money. And you're the only one who truly cares about that at this deepest level. And the hardest, I think, was this one time where the investors told me they were going to fund, and they didn't fund in time, and I had to write a very large check out of my personal account for like $200,000. And fortunately, Gosh. I had the money, but I was responsible for payroll. What are you going to do? Go tell people, sorry, I'm not paying you because people – who invest in us didn't give us the money in time. So, you know, that's how deep I went. Certainly we were a large enough company. We were 50 people, but we were not cash flow positive. During that period of time, I took it really hard. I didn't have as much fun as I can tell you how I feel today. I feel much more liberated in, in the role as a leader because I'm going to go back to setting proper expectations and context with every stakeholder, the employees, the investors, mm. and everyone else. And I'll be smarter about it. And I just believe that it magically happens. I started writing a book one day. It was called Four Hours from Bankruptcy. It's all a matter of perspective. One of the stories I think I wrote about was that day when they didn't fund, I, you get up in the morning and everyone agreed to something the day before. And then the next thing you know, they're backing out. And you're like, what happened overnight? <laughs> and you can't react to the moment, you have to react to the broader context, which is, let me go back and tell you why you were committed before. Let me tell you why you should still believe in it now. Let me tell why you need to believe it in the future. Not getting upset about a situation that 
evolved the way it did. What I kept always challenging myself to do was to stay balanced in spite of all of that intensity from all stakeholders in the mix. So yeah, I have the deepest respect for anyone who goes off and starts a company, runs a company, builds one, grows one, because it's hard. There's no question. Yeah. Wow. I, I can't imagine the amount of stress with that burden on your shoulders. I mean, not every company leader would have done what you did. Some might have given up, walked away, or just let the company go bankrupt. How did you know that this was the right thing to do? Well, I, I think I played the success in the market against the current situation of funding and tried to separate sort of, in a way, I think you have to become a little bit dispassionate about it, meaning like, okay, mm -hmm. it's nothing I did to create that circumstance. There was a relative positivity around the table. Now that doesn't mean you always get funded. You could have growth and people just walk away for whatever reason. Years later, I was a board member of a public company and uh, a bank called a loan on us and we had to file a chapter seven because we couldn't pay off the loan. And like I still to this day, 20 years later, don't have any idea why they did that. It was mm. the loan committee that decided, like, why would you put 2,500 people on the streets? So mm. in each of those circumstances, I tried to evaluate it as like, okay, go back to the principles. But here we had good customers, we had a good product, we had a good team. So it would be very selfish of me. I had made a commitment to them. So if I could find a way, then I was going to find a way. I didn't have to do the first part, which was your credit cards and max them out. I had to do it later, but it's about the same kind of story. Whether you want to believe it or not, they all believe in you. And so you got to give something back for that. Mm -hmm. I felt very strongly about that. I owed it to everyone. Yeah. The fundraising can be brutal, but you've been through the ringer several mm -hmm. times now. Is it about just having the right business strategy, coming in at the right time, solid product, solid team. What have you seen now after years of being on both sides of the table that really makes a difference when it comes to fundraising? I think the first part I learned in fundraising, well, one, of course, you're going to strike out more than you're going to succeed. So you can accept that you're going to have some meetings that are going to be terrible. It's sort of weird that we all accept that, but that's sort of going to happen. I think the second thing is, you learn over time, what do they want to hear? So you better just answer those questions. I don't think you even need 10 slides. You only need to tell if it's a SaaS business, for example, what's your revenue growth? What's your net revenue retention? What's your market share? Like it's like some pretty simple metrics that if you don't get those done, what's your cost to acquire a customer? Like if you can't answer those questions when you start the meeting, then I don't know what else you're going to be able to tell someone to convince them? Because they may like the idea, but at some mm -hmm. level, it's going to be a model that's going to sort of say yes or no. Someone listening to your podcast might have a really strong personal relationship or on their fourth or fifth funding with the same VC. And so maybe they'll get that to happen. For the rest of us, you better have a really strong sort of like why you're here, what's the market like, all that stuff in your 10 slides. But please don't not answer those core questions. And if you don't know what they are, find them out and answer mm. those questions. Because if you're sort of pinned to the back of the wall, someone says, what's your cost to acquire? And you don't know the answer, I'll get back to you. Mm, it's hard then. This happened to me once. I took over from a company and our churn rate before I joined was 45%. It was terrible. I took over, I got it to 8%. But it was within three-year window and one investor said, we can't invest in any company that churn rates over 20%, no matter what. And I'm like, but I wasn't CEO then. They're like, sorry. I was like, oh, mm. okay. So now had I known that, what would I have done differently? You know, maybe I wouldn't have been able to talk to that as a VC, but I would need to know, like when I start, how are people going to measure this in the future? And so let's make sure that the entire team knows what really matters if fundraising is going to matter to us going forward. And so start with a good story, practice as many times as you can, really push yourself hard. It is, I think, creating that 10-slide deck when they're done, you're like, that's it. But it's such a hard <laughs> process to get done. And then, mm. uh, then get ready to, I guess, if you play baseball, you make out more than you get on base. Same thing in raising money. Answer the questions that they're going to answer and try to almost do it before they answer them. And then get out of there as soon as you can. <laughs> I feel like I could talk to you forever, Joe. The one thing I'd like to close on, and, and maybe if there's something else you mm. want to talk about, feel free, but is around, and this might sound cliche, but finding 
your life purpose. Looking back on your career and what you've done, you've been able to carve out this path for yourself where you've been a leader for all these companies, you've found success in some traditional ways, and you've really been able to not just maintain, but excel in your fitness journey as well. I'm not sure how to phrase this, but if there's like a way that you've been able to like meld your fitness and career journeys together, was that kind of key to finding your life's purpose? Yeah, it's a good question, but I think it's some simple level, there's a couple of themes that I would just lay out there. I do think that a strong body carries a strong mind and a strong soul. So Mm -hmm. if you're physically weak, that will have an impact. So me staying physically strong throughout all these years has had a multiple purpose, right? So I can then take the burden of being a CEO or take the burden of a struggle because you actually, the physicality of our bodies actually helps us the way the brain reacts. There's a whole bunch of neuroscience in there that really actually explains it. So I can tell you that the exercise isn't just about running 10 miles. It's about building a system that's really strong. So that's number one. I think number two, I think at some point, the satisfaction of life on this journey comes from you setting out the goals and objectives and achieving them and starting to believe in yourself. So that's why fitness is fun in one way. The career is fun in another way. Whatever it is that you could start to prove to yourself that once you set a goal, you can go and achieve it. It gives us more confidence to go do that again. I like to think of I live in a ready state. If you have a really hard problem to work Mm -hmm. on, I could go do it tomorrow. If you want to go do a race tomorrow, I'm ready. So I like that. The third piece is to sort of start to explore, which is what the writing did for me, that mind-body connection and trying to understand, and I try and put myself in a positive place and write something that reminds me of the bigger part of why we're here. I have the simplest definition of purpose. For me, going forward, it's to serve the rest of the community that I'm part of so they can achieve their objectives, so you can achieve your potential, so that your magic and your mystery can come to life. What I've learned makes that really satisfying for me. What I've experienced makes it satisfying. So like if you say, hey, I'll help help you go train for a marathon, or I'll be a coach for you on your career path, or I can just be someone to listen and give you feedback. Now I feel like I'm actually doing some good for everyone else, which is now why I'm here. So I spent all of these years getting myself ready to help everyone else. I'll just sort of, just because I think it's fun to hear these things. When I did the six continents, I didn't find the difficulty as deeply as I wanted to. And that year I went and ran a 200 mile race, which in and of itself isn't so bad, but I hurt my ankle pretty badly. And for the last 25 miles, I could barely walk. And so mm-hmm. I was going like a mile an hour. And then as I made the last turn, this is four years ago, to turn to see the finish line, I made it. I just started crying. I didn't expect this at all. It was just like this Mm. emotional outburst. What I realized after pushing myself through all of this was that I was just so much trying to prove to myself that when I was a kid or throughout life and anyone doubted me or challenged what I was worth or anything, I had spent the rest of my life trying to show myself they were wrong. And I Mm. don't think it's a minor point because I often wonder why we do what we do. And I don't think it's to satisfy ourselves. I think it's to actually prove to the world that we're worth it. And once we get that, then, wow, it's very satisfying. And then you can go off and serve everyone else. So the sooner you can get there, the better. For all Mm -hmm. of your audience, I think that there's lots of people who are out here who will help you, whether it's me or Jane or anyone else. Ask for help. It's probably one of the best strategies in life. If you ask people Mm. to help, they rarely say no, and they often will give you more than you ever expect. So with that, Jane, I really appreciate you having me on. Your podcast is fantastic, and thanks for making a commitment to teasing out these kinds of stories for everyone to listen to. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, Joe. And I do have to ask, did you ever arm wrestle Gary again after? (laughs) (laughs) Not Gary, but some other people who I did beat. So there was some level of redemption there. (laughs) 
<laughs> Wonderful. We've all got some kind of chip on our shoulder or other, and it's it's a very satisfying feeling to look back and say, "What I've come a long way," and little Joe or little Jane would be very proud exactly. of where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Joe. You've given us so much. If listeners are interested in learning more from you, where can they find you? Oh, a couple of places. You could always check out my blog is at uh, highperformancelife.net. You can subscribe and read my daily posts that I put out. You can get an email from that if you like. Um, on Instagram at the High Performance Life. And then you could always email me if you want at joe at health. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, Jane. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.